0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Unheard Podcast. My name is Aisha Hazarika and I'm joined by my lovely co-host Tim Montgomery um, who had his Christmas party yesterday and he's claiming that he's got a wee cold but I think we all know he's slightly hungover.
1: <laughs> well, I'm like, uh, look, fortunately this is audio not video because I have a kind of red Rudolph <laughs> nose at the moment. So. You've got a
0: great face for radio Yes, yeah, a great face for radio, yeah. <laughs> now tell me, did you break your glasses in the course of your drinking yesterday? No, that was
1: last week. You I'm trying to be smart. <laughs> I am,
0: to, and we have got two fabulous guests today on our podcast. We are joined by Kate Andrews, who is everywhere on the television right now, being brilliant, and she Look is it's the news talking. editor. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm really worried. Kate's going to start stealing. We're going to start stealing each other's gigs, basically. But luckily, we're on the other side of the divide. Yeah, we don't
2: feel exactly the same spot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Kate is news editor of the Institute of Economic Affairs, and we are super delighted to be joined by Lord Charlie Faulkner, who is the former Lord Chancellor, fantastic Labour peer, and a very, very good comrade and colleague, and Charlie and I uh, ran the Labour party for a bit really unsuccessfully. (laughs)
3: Things (laughs) didn't go well during that period. But there's always hope for the future. There is
0: always hope for the future. So just before we get into our main topic, which is Brexit, I just couldn't let this podcast go by without having a bit of a chat about what happened last night with the vote in Alabama and the the shock loss of um, Roy Moore. And Kate, perhaps we could start with you. You, in in a former life, were the spokeswoman for the Republicans over here, so what what do you make of it?
2: I was. uh, Yes, the key word is former spokesperson when Donald Trump became the nominee given all of his ugly commentary just leading up to the election, let alone since, I I couldn't be endorsing him. uh, or, or those who were endorsing him, but I think what we saw in Alabama last night is extremely important. Um, Doug Jones, the Democrat, is the first Democrat to win in, uh, a Senate seat in Alabama in 25 years. Um, you know, it is historically um, in modern history a Republican seat. Um, Alabama has a lot of Republican voters, but they quite rightly rejected somebody who had very serious allegations put to him um, ab- about ugly stuff about paedophilia, about sexual harassment, um, and uh, the former presidential candidate Mitt Romney. I think said it best on. He said, we all believe in innocent until proven guilty, but that does not mean electable until proven guilty Mm. and you have the right to a fair trial absolutely but to be elected is a privilege Mm. Um, and unfortunately with Roy Moore I mean it's impossible to put those allegations aside but you know we can even look at other things that he has said which make him unsuitable for office he was he contributed to a book that suggested that women shouldn't be able to hold public office his comments about homosexuality and how it should be illegal are very disturbing he's trivialized slavery on multiple occasions and as someone who is a registered Republican Republican back at home. This is absolutely not someone I want to be associated with. Um, of course, this puts the Republicans in a slightly trickier situation. Uh, they still hold the Senate, but now by roughly one seat. Uh, they have, it's 51 to 49, the breakdown now. Um, and But you know what? It, it's not worth selling your soul to get some public policy through.
0: Oh, completely. And I'm, I'm so glad we are in a lava of agreement. I suppose, you know, Tim, you've not exactly been Trump's biggest fan. Do you think this is a significant crack
1: I think, I think it's good for the Republican Party that actually Roy Moore has lost. Um, I think what we saw was Steve Bannon, the president's former adviser from the Breitbart uh, media network that have really tried to um, pull the Republican Party away from the mainstream. He was the guy really behind Roy Moore being installed as a Republican candidate. The Republicans losing Alabama, you know, this is off the scale incompetence. So I think for those of us who'd like a more mainstream, conservative, conventional Republican party, the humbling, not so much of Roy Moore, but the humbling of Steve Bannon, mm. hopefully will uh, will be a good thing. But we have been here before. You know, t- uh, quite extreme Tea Party candidates were proposed in the Senate in previous cycles, and the lessons weren't learnt. So I'm increasingly reluctant to predict anything in politics um, these days, but the defeat of Bannon's man, for all the reasons that Cater said, but also I think for these tactical strategic reasons, is a good thing for anyone interested in there being a legitimate balanced choice in any political system.
0: I thought it was quite interesting as well that um, Roy Moore had tweeted that he was delighted to have had the support of one Nigel Farage, who went out to um, sort of lend his support mm. to the final push? And um this is
2: this is one of the surprising things happening in America at the moment: is that a very limited number of Brexiteers have got to set the agendas to how the U.S. should look at Brexit. And Nigel Farage has been in the States so much. Many Americans I know who are pretty clued up think that Nigel Farage ran the Leave campaign. They think he is the mastermind behind Brexit. Now, we could all argue for better or for worse that Nigel Farage had a big part to play in Brexit. Um, but, you know, that that was a, a, a not very well thought through tweet in my opinion. And certainly to us over here, we know the implications of what that means. Absolutely. And which that neatly
0: allows us to segue into the sort of main uh, course of our podcast which is Brexit. Now we all know it's been a really big week for Brexit we saw Theresa May go from sort of zero to hero last year. We've got a new catchphrase in town. We all knew about triggering Article 50. It's all about regulatory alignment now. That's not something your osteopath does to you. It's a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody quite knows what it means, but everyone's talking about it. And we've got a big votes today in the Commons. But what I sort of wanted to do, I suppose, is just take a step back and do a bit of a state of the nation on where we think we are on Brexit. And Charlie, I wondered if we could begin with your good self. Well, I
3: I am very struck by the language of the government, and then what they do are very, very different. I have this great sense now that what's happening is it's a civil service-driven Brexit with an occasional intervention by the DUP. So the deal that was done on the Monday, which the DUP then stopped, was one that most sort of mainstream people would agree with. It's very unextreme. It was a necessary deal to get to the second stage. There are issues about what regulatory alignment means. But you can imagine Ollie Robbins and the people in the Cabinet Office advising, this is the deal you've got to do. Read what Ivan Rogers is writing, and he was saying this is the deal that had to be done some time ago. And the only people who have got the ability to pull a break on it are the DUP. That is why if you want the politicians involved, the vote that's going on later in the day and we don't know what the result will be, which brings the Commons in more to the detailed terms is quite significant. Because if you don't bring the Commons in, you've got this odd alliance between Mrs May, who doesn't seem to involve most of her MPs or most of her government, and Arlene Foster Mm. determining what happens, with probably the decisive voice on the detailed terms being Ollie Robbins and Jeremy Hayward. So I think language of the politicians and what's happening has got miles apart.
0: And Tim, as somebody who was on the other side, I mean, Charlie was... um, The winning side, yeah. uh, Yes, the the winning (laughs) side. (laughs) And and to the victors, the spoils, because it's going so well. It is. But do, do, do you agree with Charlie? Would you have been sort of happy with the agreement that had been put forward before Arlene Foster wasn't happy with it?
1: No, I think Arlene Foster saved... Um, the chance of having a real Brexit, really. I think, um, I think Charlie's analysis is absolutely right. I think the civil servants are playing a huge role in these um, negotiations. And I think you know, the civil service culture for decades has been involvement in the European Union and I think in any stealthy way that they can, they are trying to ensure that whatever continuing arrangement we have with the European Union is, is more about continui- continuity. Um, my, um, I, I issued a tweet. Um, Hello, I it issued started. a tweet. Well, I have in my hand a tweet. So nice shall sure. we stand up? <laughs> <on the> <laughs> <break> <laughs> I'm so grandiose, aren't yeah. I? Yeah. <laughs> You I I'm Oh dear. I'm not, I'm not gonna be forgiven this. But um I made a tweet or whatever. I tweeted um quite a strong criticism of the deal on Friday and had a few calls subsequently from number ten Downing Street trying Ooh, to persuade it, me to that actually I was um right. wrong. But interestingly the nearly the whole argument that they made wasn't really on the fundamentals of the deal. Wasn't saying this is why you're wrong to believe that it is a capitulation. It was do you realise what would have happened if we hadn't got the deal? Yeah. Do you realise how quickly Theresa May yeah. might have been toppled and there'd been chaos in Parliament? So I'm actually not sure that there was anything other than we had to get a deal. And I think our opposite numbers in Europe knew that. Yeah. And I think that they've, therefore, we are in, not just in, we're in a weak bargaining position last week, I think we're in a weak bargaining position for stage two as well. And that worries, what worries me a great deal.
3: Don't you think that, all, that where we've got to is so much the product of the political weakness of mrs. May, so in effect, what happened in the election was that the, politi- the the sort of prime minister was written off as a force so all you can now do is do what the bureaucrats suggest because she hasn't got the power to overcome anybody so there's constantly a vacuum within government
0: and I think the other thing which is hard is <coughs> No matter what the rights and wrongs, by the, and the other thing we forget is, it's not a deal. It's a graph. It's a draft sort of agreement and sort of a gentleman's agreement.
3: Uh, apparently, no, no, apparently, no, 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 no. The see,
0: Irish sort of situation hasn't yet been fully I, resolved. I, I don't think
3: you're right when you say it's not a deal. I, I, and Barnier said it yesterday. We've closed on these issues. Yes, they've got to be turned into legal language, but a political deal has been struck on the three things, namely. Uh, Citizens' rights, uh, budget, and Irish border—that's done. There may be issues about precisely what it means. For example, regulatory alignment.
2: Big issues. Precisely what it
3: means. Well, I'm not
0: sure. I mean, actually, so Kate, yeah, Kate, what's what's your take on it? Well,
2: I'm going to. This is not something I I do very often. Certainly not during her time in the Home Office. But I'm going to give a slightly more defensive um, uh, look at, at, at Mrs. May here. So much of what's happened in the past week has truly been about politics. I mean, as you point out, Aisha, this was the deal to start discussing the deal. Uh, you know, we we are not into those nitty gritty conversations yet, and she had to play a very uh, difficult political game, trying to please the softer Brexiteers, the harder Brexiteers within her own party, trying to please the DUP in Northern Ireland, uh, and trying to work with the EU. And I think we have seen some obvious compromises from the EU. I mean, we were expecting the divorce bill to be around 40 or 50 billion pounds of euros, depending on what estimation you take. It looks actually to be quite a bit lower than that.
1: Uh, at the moment. At the moment. I it's think it uh, easily could go I mean, on higher wouldn't, wouldn't not re- Don't talk about
3: the money well, I, I, I yeah. think it
2: could too, but what is... Anybody
3: be- can say what the money is.
2: But I think, be- as David Davis pointed out, on the MAR program on Sunday, um, and as Ayusha's pointed out, this could fall apart. Now, mm. only the very, very hard Brexiteers want it to. But they are clearly negotiating. It's, it's, it's being fudged. Compromises are being made. Anybody who thought that this was going to be a clean process was fooling themselves. Of course it's going to be fudged, and compromises are going to be made. Um, and I think that it is just vague enough that she has managed to get it past the hard Brexiteers and the soft Brexiteers yeah. so they can start negotiating a deal. I actually think the language in it still looks like we are leaving the single market and customs union, which is what is most important to not just hard Brexiteers, but anybody who really wants to reap the positive side of Brexit, mainly doing free trade deals around the world. But what's interesting is I think this, whether you call it a done
0: deal or whether Mm. you call it a draft agreement or whatever, Mm. this was something which sort of became all things to all people. You could read into it what you needed to to get you through your own politics that week so if you're Ian Duncan Smith you can say you know hurrah you know we made the EU blink first you know victory for Britain if you're on our side of the argument Charlie you can say well actually this possibly leaves the door open for the customs union and the single market if we can't solve the Irish problem and we may not be able to solve the Irish problem it kind of I thought what was interesting about it it became a kind of political mirror for everybody. But
2: that's why it's so politically clever. You might, I mean, we can very easily criticise this from a policy perspective, saying we, this is still extremely vague. But she has gotten us on to a point where we can start negotiating what a free trade deal might look like with the EU. We can talk about other solutions. The Irish border question is still very much up in the air. But frankly, this can never be solved until we know what our relationship with the EU is going to look like. So politically, I think it makes sense.
1: Well, one thing, I don't know whether people around the table agree, uh, with me about this. I don't think it just was the British actually that looked like they wanted a deal I thought the Europeans really wanted a deal as well I thought it was interesting the way they were trying to almost back Theresa May up Because we did have that particularly for American or other listeners who weren't following the detail It almost did look like it look, looked like it was collapsing on the Monday when the DUP in Northern Ireland vetoed the arrangement that was drafted. And she does seem to have been pulled away from a lunch with senior European officials and basically having to make a crisis call to Northern Ireland. We haven't heard much about that. We haven't heard the normal uh, Juncker, Bernier trying to embarrass the Prime Minister. They worked very hard to solidify her during that week. And so I think the argument that was around that actually Europe was not just going to strike a hard deal but a punitive deal might be incorrect about the next stage. It might be that actually although phase two won't be easy I'm more optimistic that a deal will be done now. I don't know whether you agree with that Charlie. I completely agree
3: with all of those things and I particularly agree with what last week showed about the relationship between us and the European Commission. They were horrified obviously by the prospect of there being no deal. Mm -hmm. They talked Mrs May up Throughout the week, I feel that that is very demonstrable or demonstrating of the fact that Mrs. May is a sort of cipher. She is brought over to sign the deal. The bureaucrats have done the deal. Oh my God, the bloody DUP have said we're not happy with it. She, the, 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 as it were, the Elsid figure, Mrs May is then transported back <laughs> to the UK, placed back in number 10. We try and fix it. Actually, the fix done to satisfy the DUP was pretty cosmetic because they, they deleted the word regulatory and kept in the word full alignment. And then poor Mrs May, that photograph of her climbing up the ladder at 4.30 in the morning taken back out of her cupboard, sent back to... <laughs> to uh, there's no discussion but in which Mrs May is involved. I don't think she signs really... on the dotted line. The, the man carrying a red box can't even be bothered to put a tie on. <laughs> they can't even find her proper sort of ladder to get up on the plane. It's
0: terrible. But you know did. something? I think, in a way, that those the, the, the dramatic... Optic mm. of the late night, you know, yes. I think that's kind of worked for her. Hugely. And I think they're the best. I mean, look, they beat the photo calls of her by herself, you know, looking all lonely, oh, you know. I mean, on, she yeah. was sort of by herself, but she was by herself with purpose. She was getting on yes. the plane. It was like the West Wing. And, you know, Charlie and I have done a lot of late night negotiating on various issues. And that's often where the deals get done, is yeah. it? that 11th hour. And I thought the picture of her working on the plane again by herself, but that was a good optic for her. Oh, and if perfect. I'm her press team, I'm going to say, look, Double down now on being the woman who's just going to work very hard and very dutifully. One might say strong and stable. Oh my goodness! And and the Tories
3: <laughs>
1: have surged into a two percent opinion poll lead. But you know, what do you think? Yeah. Do you think how, <laughs> how? What was
3: her part in all? I mean that the the that week was as exactly as Tim says. Everybody building her up, having been humiliated beyond imagining, because she was having her turbot with uh, Juncker and <laughs> chattering about the weather and what were Ray Moore's prospects and all that sort of thing <laughs> when suddenly Arlene rings like in that program on the radio where, on, where she's where she's, where she's where <laughs> <laughs> <Mrs>. <laughs> May's hiding in a cupboard to avoid all these rather difficult with Arlene on, Foster.
2: You move us on to a very interesting point that as the EU has propped her up the real battle to come I think over the next few months is internal is the, uh, it is still not obvious to me that the Conservative Party or the UK in general has a plan for brexit is this going are we all agree that this is going to be a clean <coughs> brexit we are leaving the single market and customs union or is this potentially going to be much softer with even if we don't stay in officially we align ourselves um not just recognizing mutual standards but truly align ourselves with the eu um this is the internal battle that she hasn't had to fully deal with yet and it's coming and it's going to come in a I, very I, strong way much more
1: frustrating even than that because obviously there is our relationship with the EU, but I think we are looking like a supplicant nation in how we are behaving throughout this whole process. The slogan of Vote Leave was take control. Mm -hmm. Where is the big national debate about what kind of immigration regime Mm. that we want, which will be in our control Mm -hmm. if we leave the single market? Where's the big debate about how we're going to use our freedoms on energy and environmental policy? Michael Gove is beginning to show... A vision now he's at the department for the environment, but uh actually, I think. I think our position in negotiations would be so much stronger if we were, and the government was spending at least as much time talking about what it was in its control and what it planned, rather than looking paralysed by Absolutely. what yeah. Brussels is going to give us. But again,
3: isn't, isn't, I completely agree with you. There needs too to much be agreement
1: managed. between us, <laughs> Charlie. We're, we're, have <laughs> we're, to we're, this we're all
3: talking about process here, Tim. We're not talking about that because we fundamentally disagree about the country we want
1: after this. I want, but a so believe- I want a self-governing country and you want a sub-governing no, country. No, you, want, you're, you're, you're you absolutely want the Cayman right. Islands off the shore <laughs> of uh, the European and I don't want that. But, but
3: the reason why it's not <laughs> happening is because, can you imagine the Prime Minister who would have to be at the centre of this debate because she would lead us into this new Britain. But she is comprehensively and sort of personally absolutely terrified of debate. She doesn't want to have a discussion with anybody about but these things. Be-
0: And that is a problem. But to be, well, to be fair to her, she didn't really Aisha want to be... i defending Theresa no, May, part trying two. Be, I'm enjoying know, this. I'm trying the to words to be <laughs> fair to her. Yeah. She, she is a woman with no vision. She has no vision, really, for what this country wants to be. Now, you might profoundly disagree with Jeremy Corbyn, as you do, but he has a vision for what yeah. this country... You might, <coughs> might think it's all terrible. One of the One of the... Oh God, well, she right, had, he had something to say in that election, and she didn't. That was and the, the, problem. P- the problem is, the paralysis that we've talked about has been going on for actually quite a long time since actually the crash happened we all anyone who was around when the crash was going on was writing these speeches for politicians on both sides of the dividing When we come out of this crash, what kind of country do we want to have? What kind of society? What kind of economy do we want to have? We never actually answer those fundamental questions. And that's my worry about this whole Brexit experience. We've gone through all this pain, we've had this very divisive um, referendum, but we're still on all sides of politics ducking those big fundamental questions. What kind of country do we want to have? Take immigration. Immigration was a huge fault line in the whole EU referendum. Everyone is, too, to use a Scottish word, fiat to talk about immigration. The IPPR came out with a report a couple of weeks ago saying actually we should look at regional immigration. Now you might disagree with that, but at least it's an idea on immigration. And until we start getting into the guts of those conversations, I think Kate is right. We are bound up in process. We're getting wrapped up in what the civil servants want us to do. No one's getting to the meat
2: and, and the drink politics of it. of it. I mean, so much about this is is a political game. It's a political show, um, and that can be entertaining, but it's not necessarily helpful. I, I completely uh, agree with all of you that we are not addressing the real issues that are going to affect the UK in just a few years' time. And let's not forget that you know over 90% of the domestic policy issues facing the UK now could be solved in Westminster tomorrow housing cost of living these are not things that are put upon us by the EU a lot of that is getting thrown under the bus for a game of politics mm. and I think that's very hurtful for, for people on a day-to-day basis who are working hard and you know still can't afford their rent mm.
3: why is it why is Brexit sucking up all that political energy and all that media well, I attention
2: guess I, I mean, in, in some ways I do understand it. it it has to it is the issue of our time it's going to be the issue of our time for decades but we need our politicians to hunker down a bit more and give some attention to these issues. Well, I, if it is well. Is, I, mean, I was
3: very struck by the, the the Mrs. May came back from Brussels. or was allowed back out of a box, put it in the, t- on the airplane. I thought she was um, in a cupboard. No, she's that, in a yeah, oh, yeah, box. That At least she's her not in anyone's freezer. <laughs> <laughs> she's avoided <laughs> <That> she <laughs> the freezer, and she made a she made a very interesting statement <laughs> to Parliament about what happened, which was very very indicative of 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 where we we're getting. And it didn't even make the ten o'clock news. I wonder if we have these great climaxes on Brexit. The public are getting pretty fed up mm-hmm. with oh, I, the details. I, so you say, I mean, I was saying it as well, got everybody really interested in it, but I think people may revert for a few more months to something else. Now, Canada versus Norway, not a very sexy debate. <laughs> Damien Green will he survive or not? Much more interesting as far as the political world is concerned.
1: Look, I, I think it's not just the public are uh, not interested. I don't know whether this is true, but it's only true of my mum and other people is, I think they take a longer term perspective on all of this than a lot of us. I think we're obsessed with the ups and downs of the negotiations and the speculation. I think the public have generally got a rounded view that actually this is going to be a bumpy few years and that the British economy will be a bit weaker because of lots of uncertainty around. But I think most of them, and I think this is, you know, only I think 19% (laughs) of people want to reverse Brexit, despite the whole idea that we're a... 50-50 Fifty-fifty nation. Simple, most mo, most want to actually see this through now, and I think ultimately they think in a few years' time it may not be transformational, but it's worth sticking at this project. And so, I think the way the I I, I, I just randomly chose a Brexit podcast from a few weeks ago and listened to it. It's completely irrelevant now, and I think you could say that of so much of the newspaper coverage for mm. weeks and weeks and weeks. It's all been rubbish, and it hasn't been focused on other things, like the social justice agenda that Theresa May should be pursuing, yeah. but isn't pursuing. And I don't agree can be blamed on Brexit. There are plenty of things you can do on housing and tax well, that's that what could Kate just saying. be done by the stroke, exactly. of, you know, stroke of a pen. Well,
2: I'm, I'm glad we agree, and I think more um, owners should be on politicians, and we should be pushing back on them a bit more to be addressing these things because there there is this Brexit black hole that we're all getting sucked into, and there, as you point out, Tim, a very easy excuse to saying, oh, but, you know, it depends on which whichever side of the aisle you're on. It's either because of Brexit or despite Brexit. But it's so easy to tag that on to things that we could actually solve yeah. here
3: but today. No leader is emerging. Indeed, in the Tory party, Theresa May is kept in order to deal with Brexit. So we can't find new leadership for the country within the Tory party until Brexit is resolved. And you have a, a leader, and you know, this is... Mrs May is a, is a quite discredited figure in the eyes of the public because of her misjudgment about the election. They feel that she's been, as it were, repudiated but has kept on to sort of wind up this Although particular deal. Although you look
1: at her personal ratings, Charlie, they're remarkably stable, actually. Um, you know, she's you know 45 but I think sent you know, approval is she not perceived you know, by the
3: public to be somebody who was as it were rejected by the electorate I know she didn't lose the election but, but it, was a, it was a reversal which look, you know, it's look, very is very unlikely she, to recover from it's not a
1: good position but the thing that I find most remarkable if you look at British opinion polls is that the Tories are still at 40-40% mm, sure. again not, and they, again and again they had
0: a small uprise, but I think <coughs> seeing as I've been the sort of defender of Theresa May on this podcast I think we also do have to get real I think people do not look at her and see a you know strong leader I went to the premiere of the Winston Churchill film, Ooh. *The Dark Side*, which is mm. absolutely superb, and you know they're not look—they weren't coming out of the cinema going, "Oh, thank goodness we've got Theresa May as <laughs> 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 a churlish figure in these difficult federal times." Th- which we
3: did think a year before. I mean, she th- looked like the right person immediately well, after life, the referendum. Well, comes book.
2: at you fast. I don't know. I mean, again, I—I I, I take a very liberal stance on immigration, and um, I—the the <coughs> view of Brexit that I—I I hope we can pursue is a very global, open-minded one. And um, so I was very critical of Theresa May during her time. I'm in the home office, but it's, so, you know, I've always been a bit biased against her, but it's always struck me, um, and it certainly did during the American election, that there were real similarities between her and Hillary Clinton in the sense that these were very accomplished women who ticked all the right boxes and, and had had some real success. But in both cases, nobody knew why they wanted the job. It just wasn't articulated very well. Whereas, you know, love him or hate him on both sides, Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump were very clear about why they wanted the job, um, for some nice reasons and for some ugly reasons. Uh, But I, I really thought when Hillary Clinton lost the election and then when Theresa May lost her majority, I thought to myself, neither of them articulated to the public very well what they wanted besides power.
3: Well, I thought in this, she made a speech in Birmingham just before the leadership election collapsed, then she made a speech a few days later on the steps of Downing Street, which appeared to be a huge opening mm. to a new sort of politics. And my sense during the beginning of the general election campaign in 2017 was she might be making a huge raid behind enemy lines and shaving off huge amounts, particularly of white working class votes, throughout the country. And then it collapsed because it, her campaign looked like she was just another old Tory when it came to dementia tax, etc. But well, she and they said didn't the have right a single thing.
2: figure, and they, they didn't have anything costed in their manifesto. The Conservative Party didn't have this, so it looked incredibly weak. I think.
3: But she, but, but the speech she made in Birmingham, which, which owed a lot to many of the things Ed Miliband had been saying when he led the opposition, was a very significant shift in position yeah. for the Tory was Party, quite and then it got so one
0: nation yeah. speech. but
3: more than one nation, it was much more about.
0: It was to the uh, left.
3: It was to the left, yeah. exactly right. Uh, Kate's absolutely right. And then what happened to that? Well, was, it, was it just unreal? Was it words that somebody had written for her, which she, in no sense, had absorbed? or represented a vision that she had. But
2: I think this goes to my point, is that the public picked up on exactly what you're saying. What did happen to that? What does Theresa May really believe? Here she is rejecting free markets and then all of a sudden when she loses her majority, she's embracing them in rhetoric but not necessarily in policy and it's Mm. very, very wishy-washy. In some ways she's lucky that Brexit is happening because that is absolutely what's keeping her in this role. I
0: I completely agree with Kate. it's the authenticity isn't it mm-hmm. like it, you you can the public are not stupid they can sniff and they can mm. they can feel it in their bones what somebody is really about mm. and actually what Theresa May should use is Brexit to give her definition mm. she should be the prime minister who's probably going to go after Brexit gets sorted but she sort of sends a message to the public saying look I don't want to be here, you don't really want me to be here, nobody really wants to be here. I'm going to do the right thing by the country Mm. in terms of the long-term prospects of the country and that will be my sort of public duty and I think that would serve her. Can you write that speech for her? Yes, I feel a speech coming on. (laughs) Listen, we are going to wrap up but I just want to do a quick round before we wrap up and I just want to ask each of our guests today, do you think we're going to have a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit in the end. Kate, I'm going to start with you.
2: I think we will leave the Single market and Customs Union purely because if we don't, that certainly will be Theresa May's um, what, downfall. Where
0: will we be on immigration?
2: Well, I'm very concerned about this. Um, like I said, I, I am very hopeful for a more liberal immigration policy. Immigrants are do a world of good um, when they come for economic or social reasons. Uh, I don't know where we're going to be on it, though. I do fear that any government will c- be committed to reducing PC. the cap. Okay, yeah. Charlie.
3: Soft Brexit. I don't know whether it will actually involve technically staying within the single market or the customs union. But Kate put it very accurately earlier on the broadcast. I think I think we will essentially align our regulations one way. Or the other with the European Union, because, as Mrs May said, any sort of Canada-type free trade agreement ultimately involves goods being checked at the border, and that slows everything down, and we need our services there, and everybody will ultimately accept that. On immigration, I think we will get, we'll surround ourselves with emergency breaks and ability to stop it unilaterally, the ability to say no in certain circumstances, but ultimately there'll be a very open border with Europe.
1: What are these hard, soft Brexit terms you're talking about? Been asleep for the last two? Do you mean a real Brexit yes. or a not quite um, a threadbare? Or a, sor- a surreal Brexit?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think we will get quite close to a real, full Brexit because I think Theresa May does understand why people voted for Brexit and so what that does was that the mean? control of immigration. And I think that therefore means we have to leave the single market. I don't think, though. Kate should be worried about what that actually means. I think people want control, they do, but they also want immigration. If you look I at com- hope you're right, Tim. if you I look at countries right. like New Zealand and Australia, they have immigration running at twice the level per capita that we do, but they have the control. they can turn the tap off, and I think we will continue to get and if you look at precise opinion polls of the British people. They want the people for the hospitals, the NHS, they want the skilled workers for the city or for rural um, industries. But what they don't like is the idea that anyone from any part of Europe can come in at any time with consequences for housing and infrastructure. And so I don't think you should fear what control of immigration means.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you all to our guests. This has been the Unheard podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please do go to the Unheard website. There's lots of great content, great articles, and more podcasts and uh, video content as well. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week.